Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Myers Detox Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers. And on this show, I talk about, you know, all the different things related to detoxification, improving your health, biohacking, and uh, emotional detoxification as well. In today's show, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jay Wiles, and he's a co-host of the Ben Greenfield Podcast since 2019. And he's going to be talking to us about HRV, which is your heart rate variability, and stress, how to to improve your stress levels and stress resiliency and his, his uh, product he developed called Hanu Health, which is an app uh, biofeedback system to help improve your HRV and track it. So it's a really good show today. And we also talk about, you know, the factors that affect your HRV, um, health conditions, lifestyle factors. We talk about the best ways to improve your heart rate variability and the fact that your HRV, which is a measure of stress, is a greater predictor of mortality than smoking, obesity, heart disease, high cholesterol, so many other different factors, uh, your socioeconomic level, you need to be looking at your HRV and tracking it and finding things that improve it. And we talk about what your HRV number should be. Um, should you compare your HRV number to other people's? Are you comparing apples to oranges there? We talk about all the nuances with HRV and how it can improve stress performance and, and things of that nature. So great show. So tune in. This podcast is brought to you by Jeanette May and Mindful Health LLC, featuring Jeanette May's top superfood product from her Earth Eco Foods line called Cacao Bliss. I love Cacao Bliss. It's so delicious. And so nothing feels better than being able to enjoy a rich, smooth, creamy chocolate and knowing that you're doing something good for your body. So they start with 100% organic cacao beans. They're naturally kissed by the sun maintaining its miraculous health benefits. And then they blend it with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best that you ever have. And the result is that you fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. So not only that, but it's friendly to paleo, it's gluten-free, it's keto, and it's also friendly to vegan and vegetarian diets. And for the last eight years, uh, they have been a leader in the superfoods market and are proud to have served millions of customers worldwide. So you can try some Cacao Bliss and get 15% off by using the code DETOX. Go to link shop.eartheco.foods.com slash mdetox. And you can learn more at Instagram at the Danette May and at Earth Eco Foods. So our guest today, Dr. Jay Wiles, is an international speaker, scientist, clinician, influencer, and subject matter expert and authority on the interconnection between human stress response and human performance and optimization. Dr. Wiles is a clinical health and performance psychologist 
with board certification in heart rate variability biofeedback and peripheral biofeedback and works as a leading consultant to psychophysiology, to health influencers, health professional athletes and teams, executives and high performers. He is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Hanu Health, and he has pioneered new and innovative means of using heart rate variability and respiratory training as both diagnostic indicators of dynamic nature of the human stress response, alongside therapeutic tools for regulating and conditioning this response for peak human performance. Dr. Wiles has an extensive history of working with top performing athletes in the PGA, the LPGA, MLS, MLB, ATP, and WTA, and his consulting firm, Thrive Wellness and Performance, has held contracts with leading biotechnology and health technology organizations, where he's engaged in research, development of therapeutics, and development of behavioral retention programs. Dr. Wiles has been the the co-host of the Ben Greenfield podcast since 2019 and also hosts the Hanu Health podcast. You can learn more about Dr. Wiles and his work at hanuhealth.com. Jay, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Wendy. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got into the health field. Yeah, so I am a clinical health psychologist by trade. So I went to school for uh, clinical psychology, which is really more focused on working with individuals who have mental health related disorders, um, typically more significant and persistent types of mental disorders. However, I specialize in the field of health and performance psychology because I was very interested of the uh, studying intersection between physiological and psychological health and that bi-directional pathway. Throughout school, I became even more interested within the field of integrative health, most particularly in looking at the effects of nutrition and what we put into our bodies and our relationship with food and how these things interact. But then also too, just uh, how can we measure changes in the human stress response um, through physiology? And I didn't really come upon this because I necessarily had an innate interest in that. Like I liked the idea of biometrics, but when I was in school, I mean, Fitbit was around, but other types of biometric companies and wearable companies, they hadn't started. There was no such thing as the Apple Watch. There was no such thing as Whoop or Aura or any of these other more notable type of wearable companies. So when I saw biometrics really at work for the first time, it was on medical grade uh, 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 types of platforms. So utilizing EKGs or EMGs or thermometer testing, all of these things were kind of more the standard of what was used. And now we have all of this you know, on our finger and on our wrist. Like it's pretty incredible how tech has advanced. But I was working in a integrative pain center. I was working for the Department of Veteran Affairs at the time. I was a resident and uh, this was a program that was really intended to help veterans titrate off opioid-based medications. Um, So they were not prescribing medications. They were really working to get veterans off of medications. And they used a wide array of integrative platforms and and therapeutics, things like acupuncture and nutritional therapies and guided imagery meditation, mindfulness, tai chi, and qigong. And then one they utilized, which I was really fascinated with, was biofeedback. And I had heard of biofeedback, geez, probably like within graduate school or training, but I'd never actually got to like train with it or I was never really exposed to it until this time. And at first I was kind of like, seemed almost like a little bit cheesy. Like we're just hooking people up to monitor their physiology and then have them basically pace their breathing. But the thing is, and we ended up publishing these results, is that we started seeing that these veterans were making significant, significant strides forward in reducing their overall subjective experience of pain. 
And I said, okay, there might be something to this. So what is it? And that kind of led me down the rabbit trail that is me becoming interested in heart rate variability biofeedback, peripheral biofeedback. Um, I ended up getting double board certified in biofeedback and uh, kind of the rest is history. And now I'm in the health and wellness field. I'm kind of known as like the subject matter expert in heart rate variability and in biofeedback. And uh, now I own a company that actually does all biofeedback and monitoring the human stress response at all times. So that was a very much a truncated version of what's happened to me over the previous let's say 10 to 15 years. Uh, but it's been, uh, it's been a fun ride. It's great to see where tech has come to. And yeah, that's what got me into this. Yeah. Well, it's great that you're focusing on this because so many people are stressed today. I mean, it's the number one killer. I mean, stress kills, uh, more and the HRV is a measure of mortality. It's more important than cigarette smoking and, um, you know, high cholesterol and heart disease. I mean, there's amazing studies out there that show how important HRV is and how it's a measure of stress. And so can you tell us a little bit more about uh, what HRV is, is exactly and in, in what it's measuring? Sure. Yeah. So heart rate variability, um, is something that's it's pretty accessible to almost everybody nowadays. Like if you utilize any type of wearable tech, you will see that heart rate variability is typically a metric that's provided, um, especially as people sleep. And there are other modalities of checking HRV. And then with Hanu, my company, not to shamelessly plug us, but we, we look at it and track it all the time. So whenever you're wearing the device, uh, the, the intention behind heart rate variability is, as you mentioned, it is a great proxy. I would say it's the single greatest proxy or non-invasive proxy for measuring the dynamic changes or shifts in the human stress response. So what that means is, is that we can look at this number and then when we compare it over time, we can actually determine whether or not someone is experiencing physiological and psychological stress and how is that manifesting in their overall physiology. So heart rate variability, I always like to explain it um, in terms uh, kind of like an example that people can relate to. So people can relate typically to what heart rate is and they understand intuitively what heart rate is, but heart rate variability is a little bit more nuanced and quite complex. So when we think about heart rate variability, we're really looking at the time differences or the amount of variability that occurs between adjacent heartbeats. So with heart rate, people, if someone were to say, okay, I'm looking at your wristwatch, it's looking at heart rate and it says you have a heart rate right now of 60 beats per minute. Well, that means that over the course of one minute, your heartbeat was pacing itself at an average of once every single second. Now, intuitively that sounds like, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so every single second, my heart was beating. Well, if that actually was taking place, then what we actually end up having is a heart rate variability of zero. And that's because the heart rate does not operate like a metronome. The cardiovascular system is not established to work like a metronome unless under certain conditions. And we can talk about that. And so what we have happen is across kind of our respiratory cycle, our breathing cycle, we know that the heart speeds up and it slows down. It speeds up and it slows down. There's a rhythm to it. And then there's actually an arrhythmia, arrhythmia to it as well. And what we know is that across the cycle, what those changes, that variance that's occurring is really due to the dynamic shifts that are occurring in the autonomic nervous system. Now, the autonomic nervous system is responsible for our stress response and our relaxation response. And it's kind of like this, uh, this, this kind of two-headed uh, nervous system uh, uh, branches that we have that really dictate whether or not someone is experiencing more of heightened stress 
or reduction in stress, which we would call relaxation. So uh, the Corbett heart rate variability is telling us about the dynamic shifts in someone's stress response. Okay, great. And so what are some of the key factors or health issues that will affect negatively uh, affect or even positively affect the, the HRV? Yeah, so uh, the single greatest thing that we know is that stress is going to be the predominant factor that is going to affect heart rate variability. So stress could be physiological stress. So you could be doing a lot of physiological exertion. So for instance, right now I might be sitting here and my heart rate variability is 50 milliseconds. But if I get up and sprint down the road, I need to mobilize a lot of energy. I need my stress response to kick in so that I can mobilize energy to pick up my feet and run as fast as I can. And therefore we see heart rate will go up and heart rate variability will be significantly suppressed. So it will go significantly down, but that's because we're experiencing physiological stress. I could also be sitting here and an email comes through telling me that I am late on my car payment or something, or that my boss is yelling at me and I'm going to be fired. Well, now I don't need to mobilize energy because I need to run or to escape, but the body doesn't really know the difference. It's always trying to say, let me self-preserve, let me self-protect. And so therefore we would see psychologically stress being induced physiologically. So we also see heart rate go up. We see heart rate variability go down. I'm not running, but I'm having a very similar physiological experience. So stress is the key point. Number one, number two is significant metabolic dysfunction. So we know individuals who have really poor metabolic health, whether it's pre-diabetes, diabetes, or they're just really bad at regulating overall blood glucose, we see significant depression or suppression in heart rate variability because we know that um, kind of continued uh, high um, changes in the glycemic index, high glucose variability is uh, basically a form of physiological stress. And so therefore heart rate variability will go down. So there's been numerous studies that have been done demonstrating that those with diabetes and pre-diabetes actually have suppressed heart rate variability compared to a quote unquote normative population. The one that's probably the most one-to-one, uh, I would say, or most significant um, health manifestation would be those with cardiovascular disease. So that could be those with atherosclerosis or placking, um, those individuals who have uh, congestive heart failure, uh, those who have um, cardiovascular disease of any type of sort, uh, though we see, or high blood pressure, that's another one, we see these people with significantly depressed uh, HRV as, as well. So uh, you know, there's other, other things that we can mention. One I mentioned earlier would be chronic pain is another big one. Certain types of cancers, most cancers are highly stressful to the body, so we see a suppression there. Uh, mental health-related disorders, insomnia, uh, basically anything that is kind of outside of normal functioning will manifest in a suppressed HRV due to the taxation that it's having on overall nervous system functioning. Okay, great. And so what's an ideal score for your HRV? And, you know, what is a bad score? And what's a really good score? Yeah, I would say that's probably the most common question that I get um, as, a, as a subject matter expert in this area. And that's because a lot of people with the advent of technology, we know that we can capture a lot of data, but also with the advent of technology, we're able to see other people's data pretty easily. So we have influencers uh, that are posting whatever their aura score or their whoop score on Instagram. And other people see that number and they say, oh, goodness, like, you know, so-and-so who's a big health and wellness guru who you would expect is probably in prime health. Their HRV is at 150 and mine's at 20. Like, is something wrong? Am I going to die? Like, is my heart like about to go into like significant failure? And I always come back to 
the point that HRV has a baseline is not nearly as important as how much you can modulate HRV. And I'm going to come back to that here in just a second, because that is worth a lot more explanation than me just saying that one statement. But the one thing that I will say is that unlike other biomarkers, heart rate variability is not one that you can compare. It's apples to oranges if you try to compare it to other people. We all have, um, there's certain metrics that we kind of have standards for. So like, for instance, even though people may not think it's a great metric and I don't necessarily think it's a great metric, but BMI is technically normatively compared. Uh, blood pressure is something that is normatively compared. Uh, but when we look at blood biomarkers like LDL, HDL, any type of kind of lipid profile, these are normatively compared. But a heart rate variability is not. It is not one that is normatively compared. And the main reason for that, Wendy, is because there are so many confounding variables that are at play that there is no basis for a normative comparison. So there's things like genetics, height, um, even gender. All of these are variables that we are, we have nothing that we can do about them. They're kind of just set in stone for us and they actually play significantly. So when I, when someone comes to me and they ask me like, what is a good HRV? I always say normal and normal is normal to you. What we always compare HRV to is itself. We don't compare it to anything else. And really, if I were to say, if I put you on a monitor right now and I took your HRV for two minutes, let's say we just did a two minute time epoch that would tell me nothing, like nothing. Now I do it tomorrow at the same exact time under the same conditions. Okay, now we have something to compare to. I take it another day and then another day and then another day. Now we can start to look at trends. Now we can start to really see what's going on within your nervous system. How is it shifting upwards, downwards, under what conditions, under what context or circumstances? That's really what we're comparing it to. So the, the, the final answer to that question that I always give, at least as we can interpret from the research right now, is that there is no upper threshold or lower threshold that, that is normatively comparative, meaning that you can't really compare an upper or lower to anyone else. It always has to do with what is your baseline and how do numbers modulate differently from your baseline. Now, there was something that I said earlier that I think is the most important thing to remember when it comes to HRV is that it's not as it's not nearly as important where your baseline number is as it is in terms of how well can you modulate HRV. So what I mean by that is that when I tell you, I want you to slow your breathing down to let's say six breaths per minute, a four second in inhale, and then a six second exhale. Under that type of condition, when you do that, how much is your HRV moving? Is it going from a, let's say a 30 to a 35? or a 32 or a 33, or after a couple minutes, is it going from a 30 up to a 60 or a 70? Like you're significantly inflating. What this means or what this is representative of is if we can modulate heart rate variability, it shows better autonomic control. Or in other words, it says that your nervous system is listening to you when you command it. And this is kind of the whole idea behind HRV biofeedback is that we train or we condition our nervous system to listen to us at will. We call this self-regulation or auto autonomic regulation, autonomic control. I've met so many athletes who are in really great cardiovascular condition. So their HRV is high because we do know that there is a correlation between uh, overall fitness and VO2 max and cardiorespiratory fitness with HRV. Some of these individuals have extremely high HRVs because of genetics and because of cardiovascular fitness and respiratory fitness. However, when I ask them to modulate their HRV, they're in so much tense stress because of the amount of training they're doing. They experience a lot of psychological pressure. 
they can barely move their HRV. It goes from, you know, let's say a 150 up to a 155, 160. And then I might have someone else who thinks they have a low HRV, but they're like, but I'm not really that stressed or very much in control, but my HRV is 20. And then you have them do the same task and their 20 goes to 30, 40, 50 or so. So they're modulating it almost, you know, 100, 150% higher than what it was to start with. And I say, yes, that's what I want to see. I don't want to see the person with the baseline that's really high. That's good for what it is, but I also see that when it comes to control of the nervous system, they don't have it. Whereas I want people to be able to have that control, have that volition. So sorry, I know that was a long-winded answer, but hopefully that, no, we, that explained kind of the concept of the low versus high. No, the listeners want to hear that. They want to, they want to, that's why they're here. Um, so yeah. I, I imagine that people that have emotional trauma or uh, a heightened response to emotional trauma um, may, you know, have a higher stress set point perhaps that they're born with because of trauma um, would have a, a higher, or I'm sorry, a lower HRV, like a worse HRV. So uh, within the, the, working with the Department of Veteran Affairs, I worked with predominantly veterans who had experience, uh, you know, physical trauma, emotional trauma, witnessing things that people should never have to witness. Fitness, um, but they, uh, you know, did on duty and a bulk majority of these people had, you know, comorbid PTSD with chronic pain or cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and so forth. And one of the things that we know, especially with trauma, with PTSD, and this could be, you know, this could be uh, little T trauma or big T trauma like PTSD, or just kind of experiencing trauma in general. We know that what the signal that the brain is getting during that time is that, especially for someone with diagnosed PTSD, is that they're always need, they always need to be on guard. Um, there's always something around the corner that could potentially take you out. Um, we call this, you know, field of psychology, hypervigilance. Uh, but we see that, you know, there's significant dysregulation of the HPA axis. We see heightened cortisol output. Uh, we see really high insulin and glucose output. And alongside with that, we see extreme dysregulation of their sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight branch of the autonomic nervous system. And when we see this, it's something that's basically kind of almost like turned on at all times. It's something that's not really turned off. It's almost as if they were sprinting around the Sahara desert, you know, being chased by a tiger at all times. And, uh, and, and it wreaks a massive um, uh, uh, havoc all over the body. And it's very deleterious to the mind, but also to the body. And we see a significant suppression of HRV with these individuals. So not only are they reporting significant stress subjectively, but we'll see it pretty manifest uh, in them. And then it's interesting too, because with interest, with most people, when they go to sleep at night, uh, especially if they do not have any experience of, of trauma in their history, we see that HRV is typically significantly inflated at night. You're in a very relaxed state. Um, you know, you go through different stages that can dysregulate heart rate variability through the night. So you'll see kind of like this ebb and flowing of heart rate variability, but for the most part, it's up higher than what it would be during the day when you're mobilizing a lot more energy. For those with PTSD, we actually see a different story. Nights 10 can actually cause significant havoc on heart rate variability and overall sympathetic output. And so where you don't see the significant inflation of HRV, you might see it just kind of stay static as compared to what it was during the day. So they've done really interesting studies where they've looked at that and they've seen this discernible pattern that I just mentioned. So oh. yeah, again, another long-winded answer way of saying, no. yes. No, really interesting, interesting. And so can we talk a lot about emotional trauma on the show as well. And so I thought, thought that was important to talk about. 
I know you guys listening to the show are, you know, you're concerned about your stress levels. You can, you're concerned about uh, your overall, overall health as well. And so that's why I, I've been talking more and more about emotional trauma and HRV is affected by uh, emotional trauma uh, very much so. And emotional trauma and, and our response to it, more importantly, cause a lot of stress in our lives. And um, some people, because of their emotional trauma, have a much higher stress set point. So they're much more sensitive to stress. They get stressed easier. They have a harder time calming down. And so I created a masterclass called the Emotional Detox Masterclass, where I touch on some of these factors. I touch on um, how to release your emotional trauma with sound therapy. I talk about all the different health issues that are caused by emotional trauma. It's really astounding how 65% of our physical health issues are caused by emotional trauma. And the research is clear on this. So I talk about all these statistics and all these really interesting things. So check that out at emo-detox.com. It's a totally free class, emo-detox.com. And so are there any myths regarding HRV that you can talk about? Yeah, the first one would be that higher is better. Uh, and, and we kind of already hit this, but I, I love speaking to this one. A lot of people think that you know the goal should be let's increase HRV, increase HRV, increase HRV. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad goal, but I think it's missing the point. So, so many people have come to me in the past, Wendy, and they said, like, I really want to raise my HRV. And my question back to them is why? Like, why do you want to raise HRV? What does that mean to you? And for a lot of them, they basically say, well, you know what? It seems like it's low. Like, I feel like it's low compared to what I, you know, see you post about on, you know, your Instagram or what I see on other social media from social media health and wealth wellness influencers and i always say okay let's let's stop there so basically like you just want to raise hrv because you think it's probably the right thing to do um, but then i gotta say again what does hrv even represent and i tell people that like if you want to raise hrv then we have to kind of ask the why behind that and for most people i think the why should be is because we know that there is a distinctive correlation between raising baseline hrv and overall health and wellness and longevity. Not saying that it's the end-all be-all goal, but if we are doing other things, especially you know, for, for our overall health, well-being, and longevity, then a lot of people will see an increase in overall HRV if they're getting really good sleep, if they're making changes in their nutrition, if they're exercising like they like they should be, you know, if they're managing meta overall metabolic health and metabolic wellness. And then the kicker is if they're managing their overall anxiety, stress, and bettering their mental health, then we typically will see this nice rise in HRV. But I think that so many people think, oh, I'm going to start doing biofeedback and my baseline HRV is going to go from, you know, 30 up to like a 70 or 80 or 100. And I'm like, no, that's not realistic. And if that's your goal, you're going to be unfortunately pretty displeased with the results. But if you want better emotional regulation, you want better self-control, then you're going to see that. And what's going to happen is you're going to see your ability to modulate HRV is going to skyrocket. 
And with that, we typically see a nice little increase in overall baseline HRV. So I think that is, is probably the first and foremost one that like, I get more than anything is that people have that myth that, you know, a higher HRV is, is better. I would say that another HRV myth um, that, will, that, that typically is put out there is that, you know, nighttime measurements are always the best time to measure HRV. And I actually think that there is plenty of uh, scientific evidence to say that that's not true, nighttime averages can be really helpful um, and they can be really informative. Uh, but my good friend, I mean, he's a consultant advisor to Hanu, his name's Dr. Marco Altini. He's a big time researcher in the HRV field. He's really found that if you're taking one time only readings, that in the morning time is actually the best time because we want to know how has sleep helped you to recover? Because in the morning time, when you wake up, that should be like, now I've gone through the whole recovery cycle because there are some people who recover maybe later on in the night. So HRV stays a little bit more suppressed because it's, uh, sorry, yeah, suppressed because it's not higher until the very end of the night. So we want to see like, how well has this person recovered? And and the other thing is, is that if we want to see the dynamic shifts that occur throughout the day, well, that's when like the device I created, Hanu, comes into play, where we can look at the subtle and distinct differences that occur at any given moment, and we can contextualize it. And that would be kind of the one last point I would you know, make about myths, is that HRV needs to, not it not, doesn't need to, it has to be contextualized. Because if you just take kind of little one-off snapshots of HRV, doesn't really tell us much information. Well, remember, HRV is always or is only important if we're comparing it to something or if we're looking at it within its context. Okay, great. Yeah. And so you mentioned Hanu Health. So what is that exactly? And, and how does it help to en enhance like our stress resiliency? Yeah. So the Hanu Health came out of a need that myself and my other co-founders found in the market of wearable technology and overall software platforms um, of a lack of mental health wearable. Uh, we saw that it was great wearables for uh, nutrition, um, like in CGMs, looking at overall metabolic health. We saw in exercise and fitness, you had great companies like you know, Whoop and Fitbit and Garmin and Apple Watch. And then we saw like in the sleep category, you know, you have companies like Aura and then the other companies as well do sleep architecture, BioStraps, another really good one. And, like, that's really great. But like, you know, people will dabble or companies will dabble kind of in the mental health area. I mean, more specifically just using HRV, but it's really more of a recovery metric for them than it is looking at shifts and some somebody's mental state. So for us, we're like, well, there's a huge gap there. We think that this could be really helpful for people throughout their day to better train more regulation of their nervous system. And that's kind of our intention, Wendy. We really made this product so that individuals can learn to become more self-aware of what is causing them stress throughout the day and then learn to better self-regulate so that they can have better relationships, more joy in life, more happiness, more contentment, more hope. So Hanu is intended to really kind of fill the gap. We tell people it's really to be worn throughout the day. It's a wearable ECG. Um, so it's to be worn throughout the day. It's just a strap that goes around the chest. You click it on, click it off. Um, it's got electrodes built into it. You don't need to wet it. You don't need to put any gel on it. You just clip it on, clip it off whenever you want to use it. And it's meant to monitor you. So it kind of acts as like an all day stress monitor. And when we see you kind of go outside of your normal range in some of these biometrics, we kind of alert you and say, hey, what's going on here? It seems like something might be kind of uh, getting to you. Um, can you tell us what it is? Is Are you okay, basically? And you can log it. We call it a life event. So you can say, you know, I'm in the middle of my commute right now. Or maybe you should do that when you get done with your commute because we want to be safe here.
unless you're just in standstill traffic, but in your middle of your commute, you know, someone just cut in front of you. Uh, they just shot you the bird. Like you're super tense. Like you, you don't feel great about the whole situation. Heart rate is increased. HRV is decreased. You're breathing pretty rapidly and you can log that. And over the course of the last week, month, you know, year, you can look back and say, uh Oh, I see this trend. My commute really gets to me or man relationships, my family, like that's the thing that kind of keeps ticking me off. Or there's other things that keep dysregulating my nervous system and you have better self-awareness of that. And then we always give you the opportunity to self-regulate. We say that that's kind of like the core, like self-awareness without self-regulation isn't really that important. It's not that interesting. It's just data. What we want people to really do is to take charge and do something about it. So we incorporate things like biofeedback, a lot of breathwork practices, meditation practices, and we're adding kind of more and more as we continue to go. So it's basically a self uh, stress monitor throughout your day and then also a stress coach all in one platform. Okay, great. Yeah, and a, a lot of doctors out there and health practitioners will use HRV to determine if the modalities they're using are working or not to see if they reduce people's stress, improve people's stress resiliency. So it's a great marker to track no matter what you're doing. Like if you take an Epsom salt bath or you, whatever you're doing, uh, if that's working for you or not to improve your HRV. So what are some of the best ways to increase your HRV and, and stress resiliency? Yeah. So if we're looking at overall baseline HRV, if someone's really saying, you know what, I would just like to increase my baseline HRV. Well, again, ask the question why, but then if you want to know one of the best answers uh, to that question is increasing overall cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, So cardiorespiratory fitness, especially increasing VO2 max is extremely important. So, you know, doing a combination of zone two training, so low heart rate training combined with more high intensity interval training or zone five training, anything that can help um, maximize VO2 max and increase cardiorespiratory fitness, we know can significantly increase heart rate variability from a baseline perspective. The other thing, which is very well established in the literature, we have numerous studies on this, um, then really the studies keep piling up, that if you want to raise your HRV, you need better autonomic control. And the best way to get better autonomic control is, is through biofeedback because biofeedback really helps you to do two things. Number one, it helps you to exert volition and control of your nervous system through breathing and maxing your breathing paths. But also two, what we found is that with biofeedback, Instead of someone going through something subject, uh, so, something like a meditation or breath work and subjectively saying, yes, I feel better because I've done this, which can, should absolutely be a part of it. Uh, they can also now say, I objectively like see the change. Like I can see heart rate variability skyrocketing, my heart rate lowered. Like uh, it tends to be more conditioned in the brain and our neural networks pick up on it if we see the data, because we're kind of in a day and age right now where we can fact check anything. And I see biofeedback basically as a mechanism for fact checking, uh, because again, like there are great mechanisms and modalities that we know are helpful. I mean, again, meditation, yoga, uh, breath work, but when someone, you know, sees the actual data change and they understand kind of what that means from a physiological, psychological perspective, they're drawn back to it more and more. So biofeedback is, a, is my number one go-to. Um, the other things that I mentioned are anything that can help de-stress the nervous system. So things like meditation, um, non-sleep, deep rest, yoga, yoga nitra, all these can be extremely valuable components and very, very important for raising HRV. Uh, things like making sure nutrition is on point. There's not a lot of crazy um, changes in overall metabolic um, or glycemic variability. We know that's a huge one that can cause the body a lot of stress. Um, not overworking and overreaching when it comes to exercising is one that if we really want to raise our HRV is that we exercise, but we also don't overwork 
worker overreach because that amount of taxation on the nervous system will always manifest itself in a suppressed um, heart rate variability. Quality sleep, that's another one. I would say that might be even the more the foundation of anything because you could be doing all these other things, but if you're having really crappy sleep and you're not sleeping enough, then you're going to see a pretty big detriment on your overall stress response on overall heart rate, cardiovascular output and so forth. And then I, I think that the last one I would say would just be minimizing um, different types of substances that we know can significantly suppress heart rate variability. So things like drinking caffeine all day. So limiting your caffeine. Um, I would say also uh, uh, drinking too much alcohol. I mean, really any bit of alcohol will significantly impact heart rate variability, you know, but excessive drinking will very much suppress it. Most people, they say, like the, the times that they see their HRV tank the most overnight is either when they're really sick, so they're coming down with some type of ailment, or when they drink alcohol. Alcohol will just slaughter heart rate variability. It will significantly increase heart rate. And so you do this over and over and over again. Even if you know, you're trying to be quote unquote healthy and drink that whatever one glass of wine per night, what we know is that it can significantly impact sleep architecture and it will significantly impact overall heart rate and heart rate variability. The last thing that I'll mention um, is just, and this one I think goes a little bit, um, I guess left unattended. Actually, there's two more things. Things keep popping in my mind, but the one would be adequate sunlight exposure. So a lot of people uh, aren't getting enough sun. They're not getting enough vitamin D. Uh, and because of that, that can actually cause taxation on the nervous system because from an evolutionary perspective, we were really meant to get an adequate amount of sunlight to help reset with circadian rhythm to ensure that we're getting an appropriate amounts of vitamin D. So that's that's another big one. And then the other one that is is... Uh, I would say one of my favorites, um, I won't call it a hack necessarily, but there's great literature on this, which would be increasing heart rate variability through cold and heat exposure. So there's more science on heat exposure than there is cold exposure, but there is some preliminary interesting research on increasing HRV through things like cold showers, more specifically cold plunges. But sauna exposure uh, or heat exposure has been found to be um, uh, especially helpful in increasing overall heart rate variability. Uh, and it's that level of hormetic stress that you receive. So initially you'll see, and if you wear Hanu in the sauna, you're going to see your heart rate go up. You're going to see heart rate variability plummet. I mean, it's going to be really low. But then afterwards, typically anywhere from 15 to 30 minute, uh, uh, minutes afterwards, as long as you're not engaging in like a bunch of more movement and exercise, you know, if you get out of a sauna and then you go for a run or you get out of a sauna and, you know, you're continuing to move a bunch, you know, you, you might see a continued suppression, but if you're kind of at rest, let's say you're back at your workplace after a sauna session, you'll actually see a significant bump or increase in heart rate variability. So I use sauna and cold plunge a fair amount, um, and see those differences. Yeah. And absolutely. I mean, infrared saunas are shown to lower your blood pressure. They tap into your parasympathetic nervous system. So you can rest and digest and detox and breed as well. So they're great for that. I mean, my mom, uh, did, you know, sauna every day and lowered her blood pressure, got off her blood pressure medication just from doing that alone. Um, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I was really happy about that. So let's talk about, uh, how, or like, what is HRV biofeedback or what has it been demonstrated to be effective for? Yeah. So heart rate variability biofeedback um, is a mechanism for training and conditioning self-regulation 
through multiple different mechanisms. Um, so when we say biofeedback, what we're actually referring to is utilizing your biology as a source of feedback to the efficacy of what you're doing, but also as a guide. So when we think about what heart rate variability biofeedback is, and I'll just talk about how we do it at Hanu, number one, we're looking at heart rate and heart rate variability in real time. So we're actually being able to see it on a screen. Uh, then we're pacing our breathing at a certain rate. And depending on the type of practice you're doing will depend on the pace of breathing. Uh, one of the most foundational, I would say most evidence-backed uh, protocols for HRV biofeedback is something called resonance frequency biofeedback. This was coined by Dr. Paul Lair. He's one of our advisors on our board, um, a good friend of mine, very smart individual professor emeritus at Rutgers University. Has published over a hundred studies in peer-reviewed journals on, on resonance frequency biofeedback and biofeedback in general. And what he and his colleagues found at Rutgers is that every human, adult human, has what we call a resonance frequency breathing rate, and I'll explain that term here in a minute, um, as low as four and a half breaths per minute to as high as six and a half breaths per minute. Now, when we say resonance frequency, what we're referring to is the rate or the frequency of breathing, so the breath rate, uh, that is going to maximize parasympathetic output the most. And this will be manifest through increased or most significant increase in heart rate variability, increases in what we call peak to trough differences across the respiratory cycle. So we have something called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which is kind of the low point of our exhalation and heart rate and the high point on, on our inspiration of, uh, of heart rate. And we look to see how can we maximize that, basically create a roller coaster. And that's one of the things that we do with biofeedback is so that we can see how high can we make our heart rate on the inhalation and then how low can we get it on the exhalation. So it's basically using that paced breathing, finding your resonance rate, which we have that built into the Hanu app. You can take the entire assessment to find where is your optimal breathing rate or your resonance frequency rate. And then we lock that in and you can breathe at that rate. We pace you at that rate. And what you should see in biofeedback is you should watch heart rate variability go up in an upward direction. And you should see these crazy big peaks and valleys in your heart rate. So as you inhale, heart rate should go way up. As you exhale, heart rate sh should go way down. I've seen it work um, so extensively in some athletes that I've seen them exhale to a rate of around 50 beats per minute of their heart rate or even lower and then inhale and their heart rate gets up into the 90s or 100s. Um, so they have this huge peak to trough differences. And that's what we want to see is just that really, really big difference in, in, in heart rate and heart rate variability. So yeah, it's basically just being able to take breath work and watch what happens to your physiology during that time in, in real time. And then again, that becomes more encoded in the brain. It's more conditioned. It comes, becomes more of a condition response. Uh, and, and then over time, we begin to then relate that type of breathing pattern or that biofeedback training to certain situations. And we condition it to certain situations. So for instance, if you are experiencing something that you know is a repeated stressor for you, then it may be important to practice biofeedback in conjunction with that event so that we condition that response that we had in biofeedback to become associated with the thing that's causing you significant stress. So that over time, you see a reduction in the frequency, um, the severity and the duration of that event causing those negative impacts. Yeah. I mean, it's so important for people to reduce stress and find ways to reduce stress. And so how can people develop better habits around uh, in improving stress and reducing it? Yeah. So behavioral change is the key component, right? It's like you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make 
Pick'em drink. So the one thing that I, I would say is the most core core value of what we teach at Hanu is finding what your internal motivation is for this. Um, because you know I can give you all the protocols in the world, you can listen to all the podcasts in the world, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to implement change. You're going to actually create small, you know, small or large habits. And one of the things that I think is key or important to this is not try to jump into the deep end too quickly. So a lot of people get really gung ho and excited about say meditation. They say I'm I'm going to make a commitment or have a goal to do meditation, you know, 30 minutes per day. And I'm going to do it every single day, seven days a week. And a lot of people are really excited about it and they do it for day one. You know, they, maybe they do it for day two and day three comes and I'm like, Oh man, that's a really long time. I got work. I got to get to, and uh, it fades off. And now the next thing we know, they're all, you know, all, all, all good purpose and intent of doing it. And they didn't, or they set that intention. They do it one time and they're like, man, this is too difficult. I didn't like it. It was too long. Like I'm not touching this again. There's a reason why many of the meditation apps have such a high churn rate. I mean, 98% of people who download them and do a year subscription don't renew because they don't make it a part of you know their habitual practice. So I always tell people, I just want you to start with 10 seconds of it. Like, I just want you to do 10 seconds of it. I mean, hell, you could do five seconds of it if, you, if you'd like, but I just want to start small. And then let's gradually work our way up. Maybe you're doing 30 seconds of it. Maybe you're doing a minute, five minutes. Maybe you get up to 10 or 15 minutes. That's great. So I think small habits, small goals, atomic habits uh, are really, really important for this. Start off small and then broaden your horizon. It always needs to be tied to, to your mission, to your goals. Like, what is it that you want to do this for? Because if you're doing it just because you think it's important, like that's, it's not tied to much. There's not a lot of weight there. There's not a lot of power in there. However, if you tie it to something greater then I think that the um, propensity for behavior change to occur goes up. So a lot of people, I ask them, it's like, you know, why are you interested in, you know, health and wellness? And they say, well, for longevity. And I'm like, okay, so why do you want to live a long time? Like, why is longevity important to you? And I, I, I tell people, I always ask why until we can't ask why anymore. Like you ask why until like you finally get to like, well, I don't think I have anything else I could say why for. Most people will say longevity and then they'll start going down this, this pathway to, well, why would you even want to live longer? Well, I actually want to, you know, be there for my kids. I don't want my kids to see me kind of like become decrepit. I love rolling around with them. I want to play with them. I want to see grandkids. And a lot a lot of times it comes back to relationships and community. And I see this probably more times than not. And so I say like, whatever your goals are, like it's great if longevity is your goal, if health and wellness is your goal, but what is that tied to? Really find out what the core driver is. Because for me, if I know that sitting down and doing 10 minutes of biofeedback will lead to longevity, which will then lead because of better emotional regulation. And the reason I want better emotional regulation is because I want the best relationships with my family and my kids that I possibly can have that. If I think about that as my core driver, I'm much more willing to put in the time and the effort to do the hard work. Uh, than if I just say, Oh, I want to live longer because sometimes I'm like, ah, I mean, is living longer worth, you know, me doing 10 minutes of breathing right now or biofeedback right now, maybe, maybe it's 50%. But the thing that's always going to be worth it is if I truly know and believe that it's tied to the things that I love and value the most, the thing that brings me the most sense of meaning and purpose, uh, that, that to me is always the key driver. Yeah. I mean, my website used to be called live to 110.com and people would email me and be like, I, I don't want to live to 110. 
<laughs> but that's my son to change the name. But yeah, but people have to have their why. It's not just, you know, living a long time. They want to live a high quality of life with their, their family and yeah. love, peace and joy. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's so important for people to reduce stress. And that's why, you know, one of my number, my number one podcast and most downloaded one was also about stress and managing stress. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about measuring your stress, this marker of stress, what called HRV. Um, so thanks so much for coming on the show, Dr. Wiles and, and everyone, uh, all listeners out there. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Dr. Wendy Myers and, uh, just a, a pleasure every week to do this show and, and help you, you know, if you listen to the show and get like one piece of the puzzle to help you on your health journey, um, just, uh, that just makes me so happy. So thanks for tuning in and I'll talk to you guys next week. The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.